Hello to all the new people. If I didn't say hello before, it's nice to see you guys. Glad you guys are here. I'm going to be jumping into a series that we've been doing now for uh, the past two weeks, and I will be continuing that all, almost up until Easter. And so uh, just let me mention Easter real quick. Uh, it, it's interesting in our culture that if you invite somebody to the church, the likelihood of them saying yes, especially in Southern context, is that they will say yes if you invite them to come to church. So part of that is, is we get so afraid, I don't know why this is, but we get so afraid um, in, of inviting people or, you know, it's weird, it feels weird, and, and there's nothing like that at all. I mean, if you find something you love and God's transforming your life and it's good and it's helpful, as Rodney and Kristen were saying, you want to invite people into what God's doing in your life. So be thinking about who you're going to invest into, um, whose life that you're investing, to, whether that's a neighbor, whether it's a friend, uh, whether it's someone, like Karen mentioned, at the coffee house, wherever you connect to, going through the public's checkout line, whatever that looks like on a regular basis, and just connect with people and invest in their life and then invite them into a service, invite them to a coffee, get to know people. One of the things we talk about is, as we get into this following Jesus thing we've been talking about for a while is part of what we have to do is realize that it's not just about being a disciple, it's actually about making disciples as well. And so we're going to get into that in just a second. But I mentioned every, every single time I've preached into this, I've mentioned this, that the word Christian appears three times in the New Testament, which is kind of, kind of surprising. You would think um, with a term like that, it would be more popular, right, in the New Testament. But what's interesting about it is the word disciple appears 300 times in the New Testament. So often in modern church context, we get things wrong because we bought into certain cultural aspects, we bought into certain traditions, that kind of thing. And it's really helpful to get back to the scripture and discover that, that discipleship was so important that Jesus mentioned it in New Testament and, and writers mentioned it 297 more times than the word Christian. So it's not that the word Christian is unimportant, it's just the contrast is really helpful to see. And we talked about what a, the word disciple actually means, is just a student it means to follow or to imitate Jesus. It means to walk with him. And so last week, or the first week, we preached into, are you a fan or are you a follower? And if you want to go check that out, it's a message that helps you understand, what does it look like to, to be an actual follower of Jesus as opposed to just being kind of connected with him? If you notice in the New Testament, you'd see Jesus as he moved through his ministry. Lots of people followed him, and they followed him for all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes the fishes and the loaves, sometimes he fed them. Sometimes he did miracles and helped them out of moments in their life and brokenness in their life, but then many people just walked away after that. And then um, the, last week we actually preached into the prodigal sons, and that's plural, and we talked about this massive contrast between this one son that we always think of as the prodigal son who went off and wasted his living, you know, wasted his inheritance on riotous living, the Bible says, but we forget that Jesus was also talking about another son, and the contrast between the two sons what was really interesting is neither one of them knew their father. So when you go back and look at that, that scripture, that it's really helpful to look at the picture that Jesus was painting, especially with that second son, who was there all the time, who was in the field working, who was constantly connected, so-called connected to, to the father, but actually in all of his service, did not even know who his father was. And so this week, we want to talk about what it means to be a disciple and a discipler, or to be a disciple and to make disciples. So up until now, we've just been talking about what it means to be a disciple and, and discovering that, you know, am I actually a disciple? What does that actually look like? Is there a test that I can take to find out whether I'm a disciple? Um, and this week, we're going to be talking about what it means not just to be a disciple, but to actually make disciples. One of the things that you discover in, if someone asks me, what, how do you tell if someone's an actual disciple of Jesus? 
And the answer to this is when you make a disciple. There's a beautiful part about becoming a believer, and we get all that, and the con- conversion, and we talk about that. But Jesus didn't say go and make converts. He said go and make disciples. And there's a big difference, and we're going to get into why that's so valuable. Um, you can pray a prayer. Um, the two, the two uh, thieves on the, on the cross either side of Jesus, one of them would not believe in who Jesus was, was dying in his sin and was dying for his sin, right? He, he, he deserved what he got. And then the other thief was saying to this man, he goes, you don't know who this man is. And he looks at Jesus and said, um, Lord, will you remember me when you come into paradise? And Jesus, of course, says, um, today you're going to be, or he said, will you remember me? And he said, today you're going you're gonna to be with me in paradise. So here's the thing about that guy. That guy never did a Bible study. He never got baptized. He never uh, went to church on a Sunday morning. He never did any of those things. And he was with Jesus in heaven. So conversion is a real thing and it's powerful. But I wonder what that guy would have been like had he been let down off of that cross. I wonder what his life would have looked like if he'd been given another 20 or 30 years to be a disciple, not just be a convert. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Um, Matthew 28 covers this in a big way. Um, I've read this, I don't know, about a million times because it's pretty important. So let me just read this to you again. Matthew 28, 18, 20. It says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So there's four components there. One in becoming a disciple is to actually help people in their walk with Jesus. So to help initiate, to be intentional, to have a plan. The Bible says to go and to make. There's two verbs, go and make disciples. So you have to be intentional. You can't just be passive as a disciple. Secondly, it's to trust. Jesus is talking about here what it means to trust in someone else to save you from your sins. I share this often when I'm talking to people about the Lord, that the, Christianity is the only religion that actually has a Savior. Every other religion has a way that you can actually save yourself through works, through prayer, through lots of different things, but it's something that you can do to actually rescue yourself. But in Christianity, you can't, and that's kind of the picture. Um, the third aspect of it was to follow Disciple-making is actually about obedience. It's hearing what the Lord said. We, read, we, we hear that. He said, let me read it to you again. He says, um, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, past tense. So everything in Scripture that Jesus is talking to us about living our life out of. And then secondly, he says, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. And we forget that part. You, you, some people grew up with, uh, in church and you, your trinity was the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. <laughs> right? And so I love Scripture. I'm, I'm a big fan of Scripture, obviously. I, I, I preach a lot, and I bring a lot of uh, Scriptures out when I preach. But we forget that that has been commanded. That's something Jesus did. That's something that is there for, for us to understand the boundaries and the guidelines and to teach us about God's character and His nature and all those things. But we forget that Jesus still talks to people today, right? Um, and, and if you forget that, or if you don't know that, or you don't realize that, then what you have is you begin to follow the letter of the law, and you forget that there's a spirit of the law as well. And so I want to just challenge everybody. Again, when you're following Jesus, it's not just going back to Scripture, and you have to be careful about, about the context. I always mention this. In Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus, you know, I just follow the red letters of, you know, Jesus. Jesus said it. I'm going to do it. That's how it works. And I love that except for Jesus is preaching to people under the law in Matthew 5 and 6. And if you're not careful, you begin to go down that list. And if you do what Jesus says in that context, you will fall back under the law, and that's a mistake. And so don't do that, right? Jesus is really specific. 
He talks about the Beatitudes, blessed is he, and he goes through all this. And then somewhere along in Matthew chapter 5, the law is mentioned, and he changes gears. And he goes and he preaches to people who had been living under the law, but they have made it so that they could actually fulfill the law. And so Jesus, in essence, put the law on steroids. So why did he do that? Jesus did that so that we would realize there is no possibility for you to obey the law. It it is impossible for you to do it. Matter of fact, the Bible specifically says about the law, think of the Ten Commandments. There's actually 630-something commandments. But just think about that for a second, that Jesus talked about being, he was the tutor. Jesus, or the law, was the tutor that would lead me to a Savior, lead me to the need for a Savior, lead me to Jesus. The law was a tutor. It was a schoolmaster. It was someone who came alongside you and helped you get to the place where you understood who Jesus was, that he was a Savior, because you needed saving. And we forget that. We turn this into morality. We turn Christianity into, I just got to do the right thing. I just got to be a better person. I'll I'll just try harder. I'll turn over a new leaf, whatever you want to call it. And none of those things are true. And the reason we know that, again, we preached last week because here's the, here's the prodigal son who went away, and we think of him as the bad kid, right? He went away and he partied his, his, his inheritance away. But the good kid was, was stayed home with the father and worked in his fields, and he was there the whole time. He was given everything. He was close to, to the work, but not close to the father. And so the whole point of that scripture or, or that passage, go back and listen to it last week, is the picture of those two sons. One was good. Or sorry, one was bad, one was good, but both of them were lost. And the gospel is not good or bad to good, it's dead to alive, right? It's old to new. That's what Jesus is trying to teach you into. So understanding this as we follow Jesus, if we just stick to Scripture, I love Scripture, it's the foundation. If you don't have it, you're going to miss everything about who God is. He's going to teach you character and, and your, His character and His nature, and He's going to draw you out into that. But if you're not careful, you'll get into the Bible and you'll turn the Bible into your God, right, rather than let it turn you into the, the person that is following your God. So it's helpful to understand that. So four components, the last component of that passage is Jesus. And Jesus is asking, he's not asking you to live a better version of your life. You hear this all the time because we live in, and I'm going to get into this in just a second, we live in a postmodern world that hates absolutes. Okay, and it's a cultural death sentence when we start doing this because you hear stupid things like, I'm just living my truth. There's no such thing as your truth. There's truth or your opinion, right? But truth doesn't, it doesn't waffle back and forth, and there's no such thing as you living the best version of yourself. Living the best version of yourself is the older son. Go back and look at it. He was really good. He was much better than the version of the other son, right? And that's the contrast that Jesus was trying to bring out that's got nothing to do with bad to good because and I remember when Karen, when Karen was, this probably changed her father's life more than anything else. Um, her dad was 90 years old when he passed away. And a month before he passed away, he gave his life to Christ. And so the reason, part of the reason that, why that happened is because our whole adult married life, we've been preaching Jesus to him and trying to live that. Um, and in the last 10 years of his life, we moved here to Dothan, took a church here, and we were in his life. We lived two miles away from him. We're, we were in his life every single week. And he was a partier. He, he partied until he couldn't party. And, and when I said, hey, you know, it looks like you kind of turn your life around, he goes, yeah, it's not because I want to. 
<laughs> right? He, he had the desire to do wrong. He just didn't have the strength for it. That's just kind of where he was, right? <laughs> and he was, a, he was a great guy in a million different ways. He was a good guy in so many different ways. He was a, he was a flight instructor at, at Fort Rucker until the, um, the middle 80s when he retired. <clears throat> and again, he was, he was a great guy in a million different ways. And Karen shared with him the story, the parable about, uh, about people getting paid, you know, late in the day. They got paid the same amount of money as the guy who started getting paid, who got paid when he started working early in the day. And so Karen tells him this story and he gets mad, which is what that parable is supposed to do, right? Because it's like, wait a second, if I worked all day long, I deserve more money. In the parable, Jesus comes back and says, the, you know, the, the person says to him, the, 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 uh, uh, the owner says to him, is it not my decision what I pay if I want to pay him the same amount I pay in you? Did not we agree, Right? And so it, it comes back to this submission and the surrender. It's part of how you know you're a follower of Jesus is the submission and surrender to God. You can't come on your own terms. If you come on your own terms, you're the older, you're the older brother. You're out there going, I'm not coming into the party. I will not celebrate my brother who is, who is dead and is now alive because he did bad things. I can't celebrate him because I, I, I've got him a snapshot. I won't let him out. And it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. So with that in mind, with all that in mind, Matthew 28, what is a disciple? Disciple is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. This last one especially I'm going to emphasize today. So what is discipleship? What is it to disciple other people? And it's literally helping people to trust and follow Jesus. It's not difficult. It's not hard at all. It's helping people go down that road. So Dallas Willard, it's a famous quote from Dallas Willard. He said, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. That's the better version of yourself, by the way, right? What would, what would Jesus do, <laughs> right? It, we always answer that with, I'll do it for Jesus. And that's not what that whole phrase was about. It's, it's recognizing that Jesus has to do it in you first, right? It's a, it has to be a change of heart. So how do you know if you're a disciple? Let me give you a, a, just a decent picture, maybe not the best, but it's a decent picture of the difference between what it means to be a cultural Christian, especially here in the South and in America oftentimes and in Western countries who would call themselves a Christian nation. We, by the way, are no longer a Christian nation, if you're wondering. That, that went away a long time ago. But what is a cultural Christian versus a disciple of Jesus? And it's simple. And I'm going to just show you the contrast. I believe in Jesus as a cultural Christian. I believe in him. But the Bible says that, that the devil believes in Jesus, but he at least trembles, right? <laughs> so what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I truly trust and follow Jesus. Hear people all the time, there's, there's an old story about a guy who uh, walked across a, a, a tight wire, uh, walked across uh, uh, Niagara Falls on a tight, tight rope, right? And, uh, and he, so he goes across, and he comes back, everybody cheers. He, he gets a, a, a wheelbarrow, and he pushes a wheelbarrow all the way across and comes back, and everybody cheers. And then he says, um, how many of you guys believe I could do this? And everybody said, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we didn't think you were going to fall. You know, we, we believed in you. He goes, how many people want to get in the wheelbarrow and go over with me? And he got real, real silent. So how much do you actually believe, right? How much do you really trust? And so on that day, a guy actually got in. He actually knew the man and knew his ability and he got in the wheelbarrow, and he pushed that guy across that wheelbarrow, across, that, across Niagara Falls, and all the way back, right? And didn't drop him, thankfully. Otherwise, the story would not make sense. So, <laughs> so here's the point. Do you, do you know Jesus? Do you like Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Or are you trusting him in Jesus for your salvation? Are you trusting in him 
for your life, for every good thing that comes into your life? Are you trusting him? Are you following him? Have you placed your trust in what Jesus did on the cross to save you from your sin because you realize you cannot save yourself from your sin? And if you haven't done that, then you really don't, aren't really a disciple of Jesus. The second one is I pray through Jesus. I pray in his name. I, I hear this all the time. It's basically an incantation because you learn the phrases, right? In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. People think, kind of like when, when uh, some of you guys are soldiers, it's kind of like when, when military guys, because I was, I was in the Air Force, so I wasn't really a soldier, but I went, I, <laughs> we had air-conditioned tents in Desert Storm. It was a lot of fun if you were Air Force. So we went overseas, and we lived in England for a while. And I remember we, when we would go to Germany, right? This is back in the eight, late 80s and early 90s, just to tell you how old I am. And so we would go into these German stores, and you would see these young GIs who would come in, and they, they thought if they spoke English loud enough, right, then this poor little German old lady would understand them. So it was just embarrassing. We walk in and they would just be yelling in English. I'm like, it's bad enough, right? But now you're just proclaiming the whole world to see. We would go up and Karen had taken some German in high school. And so we would go up and we would at least attempt to speak German. You know what they would do every single time? Oh, I speak English. <laughs> right? But good luck with your own skill and your own, right? You, you try to do it in your own strength or you just ignore the fact. And that's the kind of, this, this particular thing was we pray through Jesus because we think if we pray loud enough and with enough passion and if we say the name Jesus enough times then it's going to occur. I love it on Facebook. It's like, you know, if I get a thousand likes then Jesus is going to what? <laughs> what kind of dumb Facebook theology is that? Right? There's most Facebook theology is dumb. But I mean, think about that, right? It's turning it back into I'm manipulating God. I, he's the, this great butler in the sky and I just ring the bell and he does my bidding. So just because you pray in Jesus' name doesn't make you a disciple. What about this? Um, I affirm Jesus' general saving role. Yeah, I think people are lost, and he, he comes to save, but do I actually participate in the mission that Jesus has called me to? Have I allowed him to save me and rescue me? Have I placed my trust in him and I follow him? And I, am I part of the mission that he's called me to, or have I invited him into my mission? And so when I pray, my prayer is more like, Jesus, will you? Rather than, Jesus, what are you doing so that I can be a part of it? Um, another thing a cultural Christian does is maintain a safe distance from Jesus. It's not just Jesus. Uh, Rodney mentioned his testimony. I loved it. Get connected. Get involved. One, you know, they've been with us eight months, and obviously Rodney's up here leading worship. That's, we don't often do things that quick, right? Because he's been leading worship for several, several months now. But part of the reason why that occurred is because when Rodney came in, he just jumped right into relationships, said, man, here I am, warts and all, this is, this is me. And I'm like, I, I like you. You're a little rough around the edges, but I like you, right? <laughs> I'm still roughing around the edges, and I've been a believer for 30-something years, right? So my, my point is, is that if you don't get involved in a relationship and, and get connected and, and get close to Jesus, because here's what happens. If we get close to Jesus, he's going to point out things that we already kind of knew anyway, we just didn't want to talk about, right? It's kind of the stick my head in the sand, the ostrich Christian. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? So this is the, this is the picture that God has for us. If we want to get close to Jesus, we have to really let him in. The truth is he knows everything anyway. I, I tell people, I'm like, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus has seen you naked in the shower, and he still loves you, right? <laughs> so that's, that's just who he is. And on your worst day, here's what's beautiful. On your worst day, while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. On your worst day, Jesus loved you more than he's going to love you now. That's not true. He loves you the same. That's kind of the point, right? He loved you when you were broken, 
He loves you when you're at least allowing him to bring change and transformation in your life. How much easier it is, is it, do you think, for him to work with you when you're leaning in than when you withdraw? And so this is where grace comes in. I talk about this often, where grace comes in and why it's so helpful is to recognize, Hebrews brings this out, it says that I can come boldly before the throne of grace for help in time of need or trouble. So think about that. One, that the throne is a throne of grace. We always think of it as a throne of judgment because we come in and our sin has brought judgment on our life already before we come to the Lord. The Lord has made every way possible to take the judgment away. That's what Jesus did on on the cross. Why he gave his life is so he could take the punishment of our sins upon himself. And we come and we are being judged. This is, um, you know, I mean, so many scriptures talk about this, but... um, John 3, 16, we, we always talk about that. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, but we forget the John 3, 17, right? That the world was already broken, the world was already sinned, the world was already judged. Why? Because we were in our sin, and our sin had brought judgment upon us and created separation from God. But Jesus came, and, and he, he, he made the great exchange. I'll take your sin, and I'll give you my righteousness, right? If you see yourself as a sinner, that, that's an easy transition to make it's like absolutely it's the best deal of the century right best deal of eternity but if you're self-righteous at all you're like no I got it I'm good you're not good (laughs) right you're just not okay it's like most of us as as men we fall off a ladder and our wives are like you know are you okay do I need to take you to the hospital no I'm good I'll breathe in a minute I'm I'm okay because in our pride as men we don't want to admit something's wrong right but all of humanity is like that I'm okay. I, I've shared this. My first Christian witnessing t-shirt, right? Was if I'm okay, it was a picture of the cross and all the bloody, it was a bad t-shirt. But it said, if I'm okay and you're okay, then explain this. Explain the cross. And I share this all the time. They're like, people say, I love it when people say, well, there's more than one way to get to heaven. I said, so you're telling me that there's multiple ways to get to heaven and God sent his son to a cross, right? To, to be whipped to the point of being unrecognizable, Right? took all of our sin upon himself, and there's another way that makes God a cosmic child abuser. Don't be stupid, right? In your theology, don't be dumb. If there was another way, why would would the cross exist? That's so stupid. But we say things like that without thinking because we have never come close to God. We've never really tried to understand so often because our pride and our arrogance and our, our, that silliness gets in the way. And God wants to remove that as we get close to him. I participate in Jesus' mission. We mentioned that. Another one was I maintain a safe distance. We talked about that. I like Jesus. But do I really? I like Jesus as a prophet. I like Jesus as a good teacher. But do I like him as a savior? Because the implications of him being my savior are way, way different than if he's a good teacher or a prophet, Right? And then lastly, if you're a cultural Christian, you're asking Jesus to fulfill your agenda. That's what we do so often. Jesus, I want this job. Jesus, this woman, she's so beautiful, I want to marry her. Jesus, this college, right, that I need to go to, this, I mean, we just, all, all, the, all the time we're doing this, rather than coming back and what it means to be a disciple is saying, I'm willing to throw myself wholeheartedly into Jesus' mission, right? Lord, what are you doing? That's what a disciple will be doing. They would follow after Jesus. Disciples followed after the rabbi, and they would watch what he did, and they would do what he did. They would watch what he said or hear what he said, and they would say what he said. They would imitate the rabbi. This was the picture of discipleship. Not say, hey, rabbi, could you take all your power and your influence and you know, inheritance and just do what I want you to do? 
What kind of sense does that make? It doesn't make any. <laughs> so you ha- actually have to become a disciple before you go making them. So before you go off and start making disciples, what does it mean to actually be a disciple? We've talked about this. Here's what happen, happens if you get it wrong. This is Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. These are the, the religious leaders of the day, right? You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's hardcore, man. Right? That's just, I read that and go, dang, Jesus. <laughs> right? Uh, there's Dudley Daniel. Some of you guys have heard me talk about him. He, was a, he led a, a, a ministry called New Covenant Ministries International. It was a uh, prophetic, apostolic prophetic team out of South Africa. Um, one time he was interviewed by uh, uh, Charisma Magazine. And at the time, they had, they had over 10,000 relating churches, churches they planted literally all over the world. I, I met with one leader who planted like 10 churches in Mongolia, like in the, in the deserts, arid region in Mongolia. And so anyway, they asked him one time, they said, so how big is the work? And he says, I don't know. I, we have no idea. We just know it's, ex, it's expanding. And so they know we, we really need a number because you know what they were trying to do? They were trying to peg him, right? Trying to determine, you know, we want to know the number because that's how we judge you. And so he finally said, I don't care what you think of me. I literally do not care, and I'm not going to give you a number. But at that time, because I talked to his son, I said, how, how big was the work? He goes, we know there were, there were more than 10,000 churches relating at the time. But Dudley didn't care about that. He could care less about making converts. And he actually said this one time. Somebody said, you know, um, we're make, these guys come in, and they're preaching these great messages from America into South Africa. And he said, they said, what do you think of it? And this is what he said. He said, I think that they need to learn what it means to be a disciple before they start going and making other disciples. Right? And so Jesus said the same thing. He says, listen, it's not about making a conversion into you. It's about making disciples for Jesus. Right? But they become your disciples before they become Jesus' disciples. And we're going to get into this. Here's, here's the challenge. Here's, the, here's what happens. It's the real deal, right? Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2 2 says it this way. The things you've heard me say, this is Paul, and there's four levels. Listen through the four levels of discipleship in this passage, in this one scripture. The things you've heard me say, that's one, me, in the presence of many, or sorry, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to re- reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So he's saying, uh, Paul is telling Timothy, right, to take what he's heard and what he's seen in, in witnesses and entrust it to reliable people who will teach others also. So Paul, Timothy, reliable people, others. Four levels of discipleship, and he's saying you have to make a decision about becoming a discipler. And here's the big challenge. This is what we run into all the time is we're not intentional about making disciples because we think, well, just God's going to handle it. If God was going to handle it, why would he tell you to make a disciple? right? God's like, I got this. You just love me. I'll do, I'll do the rest. Not what it says. He gave us a mission to go after. So um, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says this. This is Paul again. Follow my example just as I follow the example of Christ. So let me just say this because we get nervous about having this. If I had a question for you, who are your disciples? I can tell you who mine are. But would you say you have disciples? Well, we don't do that kind of thing because that turns into a cult thing. I'm going to get into that right? Because I'm going to emphasize this. We're so afraid of doing it wrong that we don't do it at all. And that's dangerous because we've allowed the culture to alienate us from the mission that Christ has given us. So here's just a a quick definition 
of, of intentionality. This is Oxford English Dictionary. It says, intentionality is the fact of being deliberate or purposive. Now, before you challenge me, purposive is a word. I looked it up before I said it publicly, okay? <laughs> but here's what happens. Up front, when I say this kind of stuff, you immediately go, I, I don't think we should, I don't, that feels wrong. Why does it feel wrong to be intentional about making disciples? And the answer is our culture has done us a disservice, right? So here's the problem. Because of our culture, we live in a time where we celebrate humility in moral and spiritual circles, which is good. We don't like those who talk and act like they might know the way. We think, oh, they're arrogant. You know, they, they're know-it-alls. You have to be careful of people like that. And then we become suspicious of those who claim knowledge of insight about a spiritual journey for others. You gotta be careful if they actually say they know what they're talking about, right? And it couldn't be more true than right now, follow the science and the experts. No matter which side of the political divide that you land on, all of us despise that statement now. Why? Because we found out very quick, quickly that experts aren't necessarily experts, right? So, but at the same time, who do you want doing surgery on you? You or your grandmother who prays a lot. You want, you want a surgeon who has gone to school and is good at it. Maybe they graduated at the bottom of their class, okay? But they still know more about surgery than you do, right? Which one would you want operating? Well, you know, my grandmother's very spiritual. Wonderful. I love it. Have her pray for you while the surgeon does surgery on you, right? Because we all do that at some point. We recognize the need for that. Here's what happens, though. Our postmodern world, this postmodern um, philosophy that has built its way into our existence as a nation, it, it does something really, really bad. It steers us away from absolutes. So we can't, you know, people, that's where that whole, you know, just I'm just living my truth. Will you stop saying stupid things? That's just not helpful, right? I'm just living my truth. It's like, that's so dumb, and we all know it, but we're so afraid because who am I, right? Who am I to correct somebody or tell them that they're wrong? But that's what our culture has done. It's moved us into a place. This is something Dallas Willard said, again, another quote by him, and it's powerful. He says, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. Don't get me wrong, I understand. I have been a believer now for 30-something years, and I grow every single day. I promise you, I read my Bible and I go, that's interesting, <laughs> right? Because that's opening a door to even more understanding of God's character and his nature and his ways and the mission that he's called, called me. How to be a husband to my wife, I'm still learning how to do that. Ask my wife, she'll tell you, <laughs> right? But here's what's interesting. Even though the culture says this to you and that's what it feels like, the Bible doesn't say that. Timothy already read, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, you, you, Timothy, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. That's intentionality. That's a plan, right? 2 Timothy 3.10, you, however, know all about my teaching. Again, Paul to Timothy, my way of life. You watched me. This is why it's so problematic in the church when you have guest speakers in that nobody knows. They have a title and a position and a representation from the denomination, but I don't have a clue who they are but they are good teachers, they're gifted. That's wonderful, but I don't know who they are, right? Paul said it's not enough to have understanding and knowledge about Scripture and God. It's, he said, you knew my way of life. You know me. This is why it's so important to get connected into a church. 
You can, I tell people this all the time and it drives me nuts, but it's still true. You can go to a church, if you're not careful, you can go to a church for a year and not know who the leaders in that church actually are. You just know that they're gifted, they're good looking like me, right? But you just, you don't know who they really are. So go to their house. Watch how, how, watch how the husband or the pastor talks to his wife, right? If he's talking in King James to his wife all the time, that's just creepy, man. I'm just telling you, it's creepy, right? Watch how they treat their kids. What's their house look like? What's their, what's their money look like? You can tell that someone has been transformed only by actually getting to know them. But so few people invest and get to know who Jesus really is and also get to know who people really are, people that you can trust. He said, Paul said, teach these things to reliable people. Something, this is so valuable, you have to entrust it to somebody. But they need to be able to take it, not just and do it for themselves, but also to take and make disciples of others. He goes on, he says, you've seen my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happen to me in these cities, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. See, if, you're just, if you just get knowledge, we're going to talk about this later on in the series, but if you just get knowledge without transformation, if you just get knowledge without relationship, you are going to be an older brother for sure. It's the only thing that's going to happen because he did not know his father and he was with him all the time. I meet people all the time who've been in church their whole life, and I am 100% convinced that they are not believers. But they know how to do everything. They know how to say it. They know how to talk it. They know how to be convincing on the outside. But remember, Jesus went to those kind of people, and he said, on the, ins- on the outside, you're beautifully landscaped gardens of-, of a cemetery, but inside, you're full of dead men's bones, and you smell of decay. So Jesus challenges us. 1 Corinthians 11, I already read this. Follow my example, just as I follow the example of Christ. There is only one perfect example. That's Jesus. The rest of us are just living examples. That's why Paul said, follow me with caveat as I follow Jesus. Right? But you can see. It takes a little time, but you can see it very quickly. So let me just jump into this. How do we disciple at DCF? Everybody's discipling some way or, you know, I'm like, well, we don't have a discipleship program. That's your discipleship program. All right? If you're not being intentional, it's still happening. It's just happening badly. So educational versus relational. I'm just going to read these, and you can contrast them yourself. Not all of these are up here, but some of them are. Um, and, and this first educational discipleship is not necessarily a bad thing, but this is how most churches do it. It requires attention to Scripture, Scripture and Holy Spirit, head knowledge, academic, emphasizes facts, information, content, no breaking of bread, so we never connect and actually have real relationship. You can find out a lot about how somebody, who somebody is about when you sit down and eat with them because it actually takes time. Um, start and stop quickly. Um, you don't do anything slowly. Everything's quick. The teacher has all the answers. It's always a large group, building campus mode. Lesson is the agenda, and the setting is almost always formal. And so there's nothing, listen, some of these things are necessary because the Bible said in one place it says that they met in the temple and from house to house. So this kind of meeting, this is more educational, right? What I'm doing right now, you coming on a Sunday morning, that's awesome. But you can fake it in relationship for two hours on a Sunday morning. You can show up every single morning. How are you doing? I'm fine. Jesus is amazing. Isn't he lovely? Yes. What's going on in your life? Nothing. I'm happy. I'm great. Everything's good. I'm, no problems, no issues. Whatever. 
<laughs> right? We know better. There's almost always some challenge that you're going through, and you can get encouragement, or you can bring encouragement if your life is going well, if you've learned some lessons from those things that have challenged you. That's what community is always looking like, and it's always a tension between the two, right? So what does it look like to be in a relational disciple? A personal relationship pointed to Jesus. Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and relationships. Isn't it, it's very interesting to me. Um, Paul's on, on the mission, and, and he says this when his mission has changed, because he was going into Mysia, and the Holy Spirit forbid him, the whole team, from even going there, right? They had a plan. They were intentional. They were going. And they go back, and they wait on the Lord, and they're together as a team, and they're praying. And this is what he said. It said he said, it seemed good. Right? In other words, I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but it seems like God is leading us down this road. And then when they look back at the fruit of it, they recognize that it was good, and they get better at following God. See how it works? But he said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. You want to stay out of trouble in your life? You want to quit making stupid mistakes? Stop telling people you don't want to hear what they say when they give you good advice. Right? When someone comes and says, I don't know about that, man. That's their kind way of saying, you're about to do something super stupid and your wife's going to hate you for like two months if you do it, right? I'm thinking about buying a boat. Really, are you now, right? <laughs> What's your wife think about you buying a boat? Well, we haven't discussed it. Oh, that's going to go well for you. Good luck. Come back and talk to me. We'll have some coffee, right? And I'll get you through your trauma. So here's the whole thing is if we, we're, oh, I just, all I need is just me and the Holy Spirit. That's wonderful, but it's not how Jesus designed it. He put the local church here for a reason, to have relationships. Here's another thing, the teaching, modeling, coaching. It's not just do what I say. It's do what I say and do what I do. It really is coming from a place of I actually am a disciple who can make other disciples. That's what God's called us to. Transformation, obviously. Supportive relationships. Um, you know, the testimony this morning talked about that. They, they met in homes and they take time. I met with somebody the other, this has been a couple of weeks ago. I met with somebody and I spent six hours with that one person. That is not the best way to be, a uh, what's the word, efficient as a pastor, right? But in that moment, it was necessary and it was helpful, especially to that person, and I could see that. So I, I work in blocks of time, so I just took that block of time and I put it on the next day. And it was, it was challenging. It wasn't easy. I had things planned for that time. But it was better because something about that person processing over all that time was incredibly helpful for them. And so it, it's going to take time. You're going to have to build relationships with people, and it's going to take time. I don't have enough time. You do have enough time. You just have to, you have to do something different. Quit watching Netflix. Turn, I know it has an off button. I know you guys don't believe this, but you can turn some of that stuff off. So breaking of bread. <laughs> Let's figure it out together. People come to me and go, hey, how do we do this? I'm like, I have no idea, but Jesus knows, and he's really good about talking to us. Maybe if we just, you know, go down that road. Small groups, home, doing life together, and here's what's so powerful. The setting is casual. Why? Because something about the setting of casual is more like family and less like a college class, right? And in that, you can be, it's okay to not know everything. You can be wrong. You can be a learner. That's literally what disciple means. So let me kind of wrap this up as we define it again. What's a disciple maker's role, according to Matthew 28? To make disciples of Jesus. How? By pursuing, encouraging, teaching, and coaching a person in his or her spiritual journey. Let me just say this. Until you get it in your heart that you should have disciples, 
You're never going to be obedient to the great commission that Jesus gave us. I, I don't know if I know enough. Are you saved? Yes. You know more than the guy who is not. Right? It's not about how much you know. It's about who you know and what he did for you. And if, that's, if, you, if you've got to give them something impressive, that's something you need to let Jesus talk to you about. Why do you need to be so impressive? <laughs> right? Why do you need the things, if you need affirmation for people, if you need people to see you a certain way, why do you need that? That is a symptom of your brokenness, not an indicator that you are a great discipler. Does that make sense? So super important. You, you have to have a journey yourself before you take people on a, on a journey. You just can't. What's a disciple's role? You and the person that you're discipling. What is the role of a person who's following after Jesus? To be a faithful disciple. Not just willy-nilly, you know, I'll do it when it feels good or when I'm comfortable. I'll go to church. You know, I'll be connected to the body when it's convenient for me. Then you don't understand the way the body works. Can you imagine if your right arm just decided to go, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be a part of the body today. Good luck with that, right? <laughs> I, I, I have a shoulder challenge right now, and I, every time I try to lift my arm up like this, I went to the doctor about it, and he said, just don't lift your arm up like that. And I'm just kidding. He actually, we actually did an MRI. But my point is, you don't realize how much you miss parts of your body or, or an action of your body when it, was, when it comes unable to function and do what it does. You have to be a part. Faithful disciple, by learning and responding in obedience. Jesus said, give generously, right? The Bible speaks to you giving generously. I'll give when I can afford to give. No, you won't. You will not. I'll give when I get more money. No, you will not do that. That is not how that works. I'll give time when I have time. No, you won't. I promise you won't. So when Jesus comes, say, and, and you see this in the book of Revelation, he comes to, to, the, to the leader of a church, the messenger of the church, to the, to, to the Ephesian church, all, the seven different churches in, in the book of Revelation chapter 2, and he says, hey, I love these things about you. He's talking to this guy who's leading the church. He says, I love these things about you. And then somewhere along the line in most of the churches, he said, but I have this against you. He's not saying, I don't love you. He's just saying, I love you so much that this thing that you won't let me talk to is going to not just destroy you, it's going to destroy an entire church. Understand that. It's not, well, if Jesus is, you know, if Jesus is for me, we say this all the time, if Jesus is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. And I get it. I understand that. That is a truth. But we hide behind these incredible, powerful doctrines of truth, and we hide our insufficiencies and our unwillingness to submit to the King of Kings behind these doctrinal theologies. And you have to stop doing that. You have to be honest with who you are, and it starts with responding in obedience. I went, when I went to um, England, I, this was the late 80s, I go over to England, and I'm 19, 20 years old, and I'm struggling like most men with the challenges of pornography and all those things. And I've just become a believer, and it's really difficult because you, I went over there, and every TV commercial, if it's in the bathroom, the woman who's in the shower is naked, and I'm struggling with that, right? I have a beautiful wife, but it's still, it's a struggle. And I was like, oh, Lord, what do, I, 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 this, is, um, this is difficult. I'm, it's such a challenge, right? And the, I heard the Lord say, well, just get rid of your TV. Lord, is there another way? Get rid of your cable. Lord, right? And, and it's not, it really isn't difficult. Whatever your challenge is, when people come to me and go, I don't really know 
where the Lord has taken me and what's going on. I, I don't know what the direction is. I always ask this question. Two, two questions disciples are always asking. And I always ask this question. What is the Lord saying to you? Do you know how many people say to me, I have no idea? That's an indicator that you're not a disciple of Jesus. You're a casual Christian. You're a cultural Christian. But you're not a follower of Jesus because you're not listening to him. Right? Obey everything he said. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the earth. I am always with you. I'm talking to you constantly. What has Jesus said to you? And here's what we discover. When you hit a bump in your life and it's just not going the way you think it should, ask the question, what's the last thing the Lord told me? And am I doing it? And if you're not, that's, that's what you need to do. Don't, don't go to Bible college. Don't go on a mission trip. Don't do any of those things. Those are all wonderful things. But don't do that. Just simply obey what the Lord has already told you. Right? Does that make sense? So, so the other role is God's. So there's the disciple, the discipler, and God's role is to be present in the disciple-making process. Who knew that you actually needed God to make disciples, right? God promises to work in the process by His Spirit to transform lives and bring change. All you can do is introduce people to Jesus. You cannot be Jesus for them. So stop trying. One of the hardest things I had to learn as a pastor is when I start to share something with somebody and they just go, I'm... No, I'm good. No, nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says, I don't care what you're saying, or I don't want to hear what you're saying, or I'm just going to do what I want. Some people do. But most people don't. They just push you back and go, no, I'm good. So you know, you know what I used to do? I used to go after them and go, no, you don't understand. I would beg and plead. It's like, remember this scripture where um, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus? What, I, what do I have to, be, to do to be saved? And Jesus said, hey, you've got to follow the commandments. And he said, I've been doing all these things since, well, one, he hadn't, okay, because we know right? But in his own head, he was that older brother. He's like, I'm good. Jesus said, here's what you need to do. Sell everything you got and follow me. So we think, we read that, and because we don't know that Jesus talks to them, we don't understand context, we think everybody needs to sell everything and go follow Jesus. That's not what that scripture says. For that guy, though, that was the linchpin. Jesus knew. I'm, it's like the, the Jenga block. He's like, all the brokenness that he's built in his life, I'm going to grab that one thing, and I'm going to yank it out, and it'll all come tumbling down. And it's ugly when it happens. You, you see people really repent and really get right with God. It's an ugly, ugly process. But so is birth. And that's what it is, right? It's painful, especially for the one who's given birth, right? But it's painful. But the whole point is, is when you get to that place where you finally say yes to the Lord, you finally take personal responsibility and say, I am broken, I need help. Jesus, I promise, if you're listening, he will pull that linchpin out, he will pull that Jenga block out, and all the brokenness will come tumbling down, and Jesus will rebuild you. He will transform you by the renewing of your mind. That's what Scripture says. He will conform you to his image, not the image of the world. You have to make a choice, though, that you're going to participate in the journey Jesus has brought you on, and then once you begin to understand what that looks like and you actually become a disciple, you are now called into the mission. I've read it many, many times. You have been reconciled so that you would go and take on the ministry of reconciliation. You know what it means to be lost. You know what it means to be broken. You know what it means to try to do this in your own strength. And now Jesus has come, and he's saved you. He's rescued you. And if you've had that real encounter, there's a humility that goes to the core of who you are because you cannot be saved until you know you're lost. You just can't. If you think you're okay, there is no hope for you. Jesus said it this way. He said, if you are not in a need of a physician, it's because you don't know you're sick. He doesn't say you're not sick. He says, you don't know you are. 
but he comes and he wants to reveal the brokenness. In too many churches, we care more about what it looks like on the outside and less of what's happening on people's inside. And so when people are broken and they begin to make it right, they are all kinds of broken. So let me just finish with this story. So there's a, there's a guy, he, he, he was a homosexual, he was a producer in Hollywood, and I know this is already offensive before I even get finished, but that's fine, you, you guys will be okay. So he, he goes through this whole process of becoming successful, everything he dreamed about was coming true, he's in his early 20s, he's brilliant, he's a writer, he's a creator, becomes a producer, and he's involved in all the parties, he goes out and he just prostitutes himself, you know, to anybody who would. And he said, you know, in the early days it was awesome because I was really good looking and I would, I would go home with somebody every single time. And he said, and then I got into my 30s and I got into my 40s and he said, and before I realized it, he said, nobody wanted to go home with me anymore. Nobody wanted to take me home, only the young guys. And he said, I realized something was going on and it caused me to question some things. And he said, and in this process, he said, I recognized I was so broken and somebody preached Christ to me. And he said, and I became a believer. He said, I, the church I went to was amazing. He said, some of the godliest men I'd ever met in my life. He said, but, but that made them even more attractive to me. He goes, because even though Jesus saved me, he said, he did not take away my same-sex attraction. So I was still attracted to men. And he says, and I go in, and there's these amazing men of God. And he said, and I, I walked up. He said, two or three times I did this. I made a pass at one of them, put my hand on them, indicated that I would like to get to know them more, all <laughs> right? And he said, and every time I did that, he said, the man would look at me and go, dude, I love you, but that ain't ever going to happen. I love you too much to let that happen. He goes, you need to understand that my affection for you is not sexual, but it's still affection. And he said, they treated me as a father would a son. They were godly, he said, and it challenged me. He said, in this process, somebody asked him, are you sure that you were actually a homosexual? He's like, I don't know. I slept with over 1,000 men, so I'm guessing maybe I was, right? A little bit sarcastic. But here's what he said. Somebody said, well, you know, if Jesus loved you, he would take the same-sex attraction away. And he said, I don't know all about all that. I just know that he saved me. And he said, and my obedience to him is, I'm not going to participate that any longer, even though I still want to. So we hear that, and we say, well, I'm not sure about all that. But let me just tell you, coming from a man who is attracted to my wife and also other women. It's not my wife's beautiful. She's amazing in a million different ways. But you think for one second that just because she's a beautiful flower in the field, that all the other beautiful flowers in the field aren't beautiful, you are an idiot and definitely not a man. Right? It's just how it works. But it's a choice that we make to say, that one woman I said yes to, which means if I'm going to love Jesus and love her, I'm saying no to every other woman who ever comes along. And I'm doing it on the front side because I'm trusting that what God is doing in my life is good. So here's the picture. At some point, what you have to do is you have to take personal responsibility for your walk with Jesus. You have to become a disciple if you have not already. And let me just let me say this. It's not... Uh, you become a believer and then you become a disciple. Some people say, you know, before they're believers, we call that evangelism. Jesus didn't. Jesus said, go make disciples. There are people who aren't saved, make disciples anyway, especially when they're not saved. How many of the 12 were saved when Jesus made them disciples? Go try to figure that out. Good luck with that, right? But the point is this. You have to first become a disciple and then recognize I have been given a mission and this is going to be the heaviest thing in the world to you if you don't understand it. You, as a believer, are responsible for your sphere of influence. 
Jesus put you there on purpose. He saved you. He reconciled you to himself. Why? So he could have the relationship with you, yes, but also so the promise of other sons and daughters could come back into the family again through you. And here's why that's the only reason that's scary is because somehow you think you have to do that. Somehow you have to come up with the idea, but you don't. That's part of the problem. When we think about how I'm going to go make disciples and I'm going to come up and evangelize, i got to figure it all out. You do not. You just figure out what Jesus is already doing and do that. A friend of mine, he he was cutting my hair for a long time, and I knew he was a person of peace to me, and I needed to minister to him. And so he knew I was a pastor. I loved him dearly, and I was struggling to get through the gospel. One day, I was praying before I went to get my hair cut, and I said, Lord, how do I share the gospel with this guy? And I heard God say, ask him this question. It was a simple question, not anything I came up with. He said, ask him this question. Um, What do you think I think of you? And so it turns out nobody in the room that day, which was unusual, I asked him that question, and he stopped cutting my hair. He never did this. He just stopped cutting my hair, and he stepped back, and he goes, well, I don't know what God thinks about about me, but I know what his people think about me, and they're not happy. And I said, well, I'm one of his people, and I like you, even though you're heathen. (laughs) Because he was. (laughs) He was a player. And he goes, I have to think about that. He goes, I don't know what God thinks about me. And then I said, because I recognize an opportunity, would you like to know what God thinks about you? And he said, I really would. And I got to share the gospel with this guy for the first time in a way that he understood. And when I finished, I said, so what do you think, man? Do you want to you become a believer? you want to pray with me right now? He goes, nope. But you've given me more to think about in this one time than I've had in the whole time I ever went to church. Doesn't mean people weren't ministering to him. It just means that God takes his opportunities. And here's my point. I didn't come up with that. I'm not that good. God did. All I did was say, God, I see the mission you've called me to. It's your mission. The harvest is yours. It's already ready. You said it. Lord, would you just show me my part in it and what I need to do? And when I did that, I became effective. So I just want to challenge you as I close this morning. Are you a disciple? Or are you just a casual Christian? Are you a cultural Christian? In discipleship, have you decided that you know enough about Jesus to have saved you and reconciled you that you can actually bring that information and that understanding to other people? Because you can You just have to make a decision that you're going to do it. Paul said, follow me to Timothy. Follow me. Can you say that? Do you have enough courage to say to somebody, follow me, even in your brokenness? Because there's one perfect example, but you are the living one. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And then be obedient to the call that Jesus has on your life. And we're going to see people come to know him that have never known him before. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? So, Lord, we just come to you in Jesus' name, and we say thank you. First of all, Lord, that we can be reconciled to you. That, Jesus, while we were still sinners, when we were in our brokenness, the worst place we'd ever been, Lord, not even intentional at all looking for you in any form or fashion, you loved us, you paid a price for us before we even knew that we needed a price to be paid. And, Jesus, you came to us, we didn't come to you. So thank you, Lord, that you loved us first. Because of that, Lord, we can love you. And Lord, now that we've been reconciled, God, we can love others in a way that they've never been loved before. Lord, we can, we can get into somebody's life and love them even in their brokenness, Lord, because that's what you did to us. And Lord, we can challenge them to follow you, to follow me as I follow you, Lord, to recognize what you've done in my life, Lord, and that you can do it in theirs. So Lord, would you call us not just to be disciples, but be disciple makers, because that's the call that you put on every single believer in this room. 
And so for that, Jesus, we say yes. Now, Lord, we look for opportunities as we move out this week. Opportunities, Lord, not just to be a disciple, but to be a disciple maker. Lord, you said you would make us into fishers of men. Would you do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, we have a ministry team. We'll be up here in just a second. We'd love to pray for you. If you're online, just connect on one of the, uh, the buttons there and click on pray, and we'll pray for you as well. Otherwise, have a wonderful, wonderful week. We love you guys.